Uh, good morning, church. It's always a blessing and privilege to be able to come back to the house of God to worship. Um, today is our, our last message on the book of Romans. We end with the last part of Romans 8, which is really a climax uh, in this book. And then for March, we will take a break. We will go into our series on Lent on the Upper Room Discourse, basically John uh, 14 to 17. The Upper Room Discourse is also known as the Last Discourse of Jesus because it is the last really big uh, segment of teaching by our Lord. Okay, so we do that all the way till Easter. And then April, we will come back to the book of Romans uh, from Romans 9. So today we're looking at the last section of Romans 8. Uh, let us commit this time to the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll move freely in our midst. Once again, grip our hearts with the gospel. That is by your grace that through our groans we can see your glory. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up, and Father, you glorified. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We often look back in our lives and see the opportunities we have missed and feel like they'll never come back. And when we do this, it's soul-crushing. This was a statement made by Kenneth Cole. And he continues. He says, in my early 20s, I had just graduated from an Ivy League college. I had a good job. I was outgoing and sporty, and so there were always people around me. I was an active and popular youth leader at church. Not only that, my girlfriend is the woman of my dreams. I thought I would marry her, serve actively at church, and continue to build on my career. But I was hit by a slew of health complications. My eczema was so severe. My whole body was itchy and it was covered with boils. It was so bad that I could not even step out of my house. Fast forward 10 years. I was without a job. My girlfriend has married someone else with a better prospect. And my church friends, they've gone on to build their careers and families and our paths have diverged. And so most of my days I spent alone, trapped in my home. Most of my waking hours I'm struggling with physical pain or feeling high from the drugs that I take to ease that pain or I'm wrestling with the emotional regrets that I've missed the boat. Who would hire me? Who would love me? But more importantly, can I ever repair my relationship with God? Can I ever restore my fervent faith, the childlike faith? Or would I just grow cold and become a pew warmer, have a diluted, crusty faith that does no one any good? You know, friends, in our journey of following Jesus, we're bound to run to difficult situations. Challenging situations. We are bound to have struggles with ourselves, with the people around us, or with the world. Now the question is, will we continue to trust the Lord? Will we have the triumphant faith? Or will we feel like we are betrayed by our friends, we are hurt by the church, we have doubts towards God, and though we don't say it out aloud, but you know, we've lost that first love. 
We don't really dare to rely on God because we find Him unreliable. And so this is a question I'd like us to consider today. Would we be able to have a victorious faith when we go through the challenges of life? In Romans 8, verses 18 to 39, which is the last section of Romans 8, we will see the groans, the glory, and the grace. In fact, we'll see three groans that we have. And through the groaning, we'll see the glory, and then finally, the grace. We ask, can we have victorious faith? And the question is, Paul asks, of course we can, because of this loving assurance. So when we look at the book of Romans, it says salvation is by faith. When we trust in Jesus, His righteousness is imputed to us, which means it's declared to us. Overnight, we don't become a saint, we don't become righteous or good, but it's the goodness of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus given to us. Now, does it mean that we don't pursue righteousness? Does it mean we don't pursue holiness? Paul's response, of course not. We have to. And so the whole of Romans 5 to Romans 8 is an important chapter in our Christian life. But there are two concepts, that appear, or two words that appears in this segment that don't appear before. First is the Holy Spirit. See, before we have salvation, there's no Holy Spirit. Okay, so there's no struggle. Now there's the Holy Spirit, there's struggle with the flesh. But if there's struggle, it means there's a chance for victory. Second is suffering. Before that, we don't talk much, Paul didn't talk much about suffering, but it comes to this segment of holiness. It seems that suffering is a necessity. So Romans 6, Romans 5, Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8, he talks about suffering, especially this section that we're going to look at. Last week, someone asked me, you know, we believe the gospel is the gospel enough. What do you think? How would you respond? Now, I ask him, I always say, someone asks you a question, ask back another question. Ask, well, what do you mean by enough? If it's enough that I don't have problems in my life, that I don't have suffering, friends, that is a concept that is uh, not found in Scripture. Paul assumes suffering is a necessity. That is why he talks about it. And so in Romans 8, he deals with this issue. There are groans in our life, but we can see the glory because of the grace of God. And so, how do we, what do we feel? Three groans. Romans 18, 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. What did Romans 7, uh, 8, 17 says? It says, If we share in the glory of Christ, we will also share. Sorry, if we share in His suffering, we will also share in His glory. What is this glory? And so the rest of Romans 8, Paul unpacks this glory. We will share in His glory and then he says, I consider the suffering of this present time. He assumes that they are going through difficult times. It's unavoidable. But he, he says, I consider. What is consider? This word has happened in Romans 8 a few times. Logis my, which means I think hard. I reckon. I intentionally count it. Intentionally count what? About the suffering and the future glory. You see, today when we go through difficult times, when we grieve, what does the world tell us? Don't think about it. Right? Do something else to distract yourself. Do something that brings you pleasure. Don't think about that problem. Now, I think these are good coping mechanisms. Right? It helps us cope with the situation. But friends, if we want to have a victorious faith, Scripture tells us you have to think about it. Intentionally count. Consider. Consider your suffering and 
and compared to what glory we will have. If our hope is only in this world, then we want to avoid all suffering because this is the only world, only playground we get. But as followers of Christ, we know that is not true. So Paul explains how we feel with three groans. First, for the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. He says all creation groans, they wait eagerly. The term wait eagerly appears in Romans several times, in the New Testament seven times. Every time it talks the waiting for the coming of Jesus. Why is it waiting for the revealing of sons of God? When God created Adam and Eve, right? They were to take God's place to rule over creation. But we fell into sin. And so now creation is longing for the time when the people of God are restored again as regents, as rulers, to reign over them. <clears throat> he says, For creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. There's futility, but there's hope. What futility is this? Well, when we see wars, diseases, uh, natural disasters, it's this emptiness, it's futile. But all creation also includes us. We work so hard in life, at the end, what happens? We face sickness and death. Just yesterday, our oldest member, 92, 97 years old, uh, we had his cremation. I visited him maybe one and a half years ago. And at the time, you know, he was still very healthy. He told me that, you know, I just stopped driving. I said, huh, just stopped driving. He was really 96, I think. And he explained to me every day, he would go to the gym and what he does. And he can even tell me jokes, you know. He says, no, I don't see you very often, but I see you. You think I don't see you, right? But I see you every day, you know, on screen. So I was, you know, I do, when I visit old people, sometimes it's, it's challenging, the situation. But for him, I, I, I remember him in his 90s, still so sharp and healthy. And then, of course, you know, he had a sickness. And now he's home with the Lord. And this is the sense of futility we face, death. But yet there's hope. What hope is this? That creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's not only we are redeemed, we have freedom. He says creation is also waiting for that. It is groaning Verse 22, for we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It is also, all creation is also waiting. What is this groan? Sanatzo. It means to sigh. So not only are we sighing, creation sighs. How? Well, it's metaphorical, okay? It's not the earthquake. Oh. It's metaphorical. It includes all the pains and emptiness that we experience in this world. It's acknowledging that there is brokenness in this world. All creation groans until now. It's waiting. Paul acknowledges that there's difficulty and brokenness in this world. Not just in the world, but in, in us. The second groan, not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we also groan. We ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. Why do we groan? Because, first, we are the first fruit of the Spirit. If there's first fruit, it means there's the rest to come. If there's first fruit, it means that we already have the spiritual life. That is why we groan. You see, if our only hope is in this world, why should we groan? It's because we, we understand the world should not be like that. We long for a time where things are right. That is why we groan waiting eagerly for the adoption. Now, wait a minute. 
Verse 17 last week, we just saw that we are already adopted, right? But here it says we are waiting eagerly for the adoption. Why? Last week, I explained the Roman concept of adoption. I go out looking for a person to inherit my wealth, my name. I take on his debt. But there are two steps. First is a private one, especially if the person is between 14 to 25. The second, when you reach 25, you are full-grown, part of the member of the household, you know, is publicly declared. So when we accept Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. Verse 17 tells us we are adopted to be children of God. That is a reality. But the whole world doesn't know until Christ comes again. That is why we are waiting for the adoption. And again, when we say this, the question is, why are we groaning? It's because we already have the adoption. It's because we already glimpse what eternal life is supposed to be like and we know this life is not like that and that is why we groan. Let me explain. Annie Dillard, in a Pulitzer Prize-winning book, um, Pilgrim at Tinker's Creek, Basically, Tinker's Creek is a home. You know, she was going, get, suffering a burnt out. She wanted to go back close to nature. So she lived there and she kept her journal. And her journal became a book. Essentially, she said, you know, I live in nature. I wanted to be refreshed. But you know what I saw? Nature brutalized me. What I saw was the survival of fittest, mindless violence and meaningless deaths. And then she describes this bunk that stung a frog. The frog got paralyzed. And the bug sucked up all the brain of the frog, you know. Says this is what you expect in nature. And so, friends, if we believe only in this material world, why do we feel that this world should have love, should be kind, should be good? Based on what? Based on nature? It's not like that. By nature, we should accept all our brokenness and death and disease, and there's no reason for you to groan. But we know. We know the world ought not to be like that. Somehow, we feel that there should be love and kindness and goodness. And as believers, we know that because Scripture tells us that is what God is like. Because we are the first fruit of the Spirit, because we are waiting for the final adoption, the final redemption, where all things will be made right. And now things are not right, and that is why we are groaning. We are waiting for the redemption of body, and for in hope we have been saved. We have hope. What is hope? But hope that is seen is not hope. If you have it now, then there's no hope. That is why we, we are not seeing it now, but we have hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. We are waiting. And not only is creation groaning, we are groaning. Not only we are groaning, he says, the third groan, the Holy Spirit is groaning. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Since the Holy Spirit prays for us when we don't know what to pray according to the will of God. Now, some people say this groaning of the Spirit is speaking in tongues, okay? But based on the context, it doesn't suggest, there's no evidence at all for this. Three times the word groaning is used in this text. It's essentially saying that the Holy Spirit understands our groans. Not only does He understand, He brings that groan, that pain before God and prays for us even when we don't know how to pray. You know, my friends, how 
deep and great a comfort that is. To know that someone empathizes, you know that God understands and He prays for us. I shared before in December, you know, when I received the news of our sister's uh, death and the three-week-old baby, I was in JB at a church retreat. We had just arrived and so we were sitting in the conference room waiting for our keys to the hotel room. Alright, so you can imagine 300 over strangers, they are trying to talk to me because I'm the speaker, right? Try to be nice, bring coffee for me, and I was there, <laughs> I was just crying. And they said, wow, this speaker, weird, huh? Touched by the Spirit. <laughs> and then the pastors came, right? I explained to them, and they prayed for me. And two of them prayed, suddenly they burst out in tears, you know? They cried louder than me. <laughs> so during the retreat, I joked, and I told the church, they said, your pastors have the gift of mourning. <laughs> right? I mean, they cried so loud. I was thinking, oh, you don't even know that person, you know? Are you crying? <laughs> But you know what that did for me? When they cried, it gave me permission to cry. It brought me deep comfort because someone understood. Friends, this is what Paul is saying. You have groans in your life so deep that words cannot express the injustice of this world. Why is there so many wars? Why is life unfair? Why am I going through this? Why not? Why I can't be doing something else? All these groans, he says that the Spirit groans with us, not just groans and understands. He packages and brings it before God and prays for us in a way that's according to the will of God. And so there are groans how we feel about this brokenness of life. When no one understands, God understands. He prays for us and He is doing something. You see, someone asked Michelangelo, when you see a block of marble, what do you see? I ask you the same question, what do you see? A block of marble. <laughs> That's all right. But Michelangelo said, I see a beautiful sculpture waiting to be released, waiting to be freed. So it's my responsibility with my hammer and chisel to free the sculpture. Uh, no wonder he is Michelangelo, right? We all see, only see rock. But that is exactly what God sees when he looks at us. Lumps of clay with a treasure inside, waiting to be released, that will reflect His glory. And so not only do we groan, Paul says, there's glory. That's what God is doing to reflect His glory through us. He comes to this well-known verse 28. So we know that God causes all things, all things, all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are caught according to His purpose. The word we know, it's the same word when Adam knew Eve to become one flesh. So it's not just head knowledge, I know, I know God exists, I know Jesus loves me. It's intuitive, it's experienced. I know that God causes all things. What things? All things. What things? Not good things, not bad things, all things. To work for the good, to work is where we get our word synergy. Synergize, synergizes all these things. It doesn't say God does all these things. It says all these things, God synergizes them for good. For who? For those who love God. When we hold on to our love for God, despite the circumstances, we see the goodness that is working out to those who are called according to His purpose. Do we have, essentially this verse is talking about the sovereignty of God the goodness of God, that we hold on to both His sovereignty and His goodness. Jonathan Edwards, 
that God used in the 17th century to bring about the first great awakening in America. The first sermon he preached was at 18 years old, and it was based on Romans 8.28, and we still have his outline of his sermon today. His topic is, why should Christians be happy? Now clearly, what concerned the people then concerns us today, right? We want to be happy. And he says, well, we can be happy, we should be happy because bad things turn out for good, good things cannot be taken away, and by good, he means not that you get promoted, you get good health. By good, he, he refers to Romans 8, 29, 30, that we are justified, that we are redeemed, that we are adopted. All the things that God does for us that cannot be taken away. And because of that, best things are yet to come. Do you believe? That's what Romans 8, 28 is talking about. And if you do, Edward says, if you know this, if you know your good things can never be taken away from you, you may now look upon the whole army of worldly afflictions and suffering, and you can consider with joy that however great they are, they cannot do you any real hurt or mischief. You may triumph over them all if you know these things. Like Paul, there's an assumption, right? We go through afflictions and suffering. Nowhere in Scripture or Christian experience tells us that we are freed from all these things. But victory is promised. All the good things that Christ has done for us cannot be taken. Your salvation, your redemption, your identity as a child of God, it would not be changed. So what is this good thing? Now when you read the Bible, you just need to read the context. You don't have to imagine, or oh, good things means, you know, how I feel about certain things. Scripture tells us what is the good thing. Verse 29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. It means that we grow in Christ's likeness. What God is doing, why He saves us and doesn't bring us to heaven immediately, but leaves us here, is to help us to grow in Christ's likeness. And if that is what God is doing, we have to ask ourselves, in our workplace, in our marriages, in our homes, are we growing in Christ's likeness? Are we helping each other to grow in Christ's likeness? And why do we do that? He follows up with a series of verbs. He says, In these whom he predestined, he also called. In these he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. He calls us, for without the calling of God, we will never turn to him. Not only does he cause us, he justifies us. What is justify? We spend the whole of Romans, don't know, three or four explaining, right? Declared righteous as a result, we are peace with God. And as a result, we are glorified. When we, how do we see the glory of God? How? Through Christ. Jesus fully embodies the glory of God, which means when we grow in Christ's likeness, we grow in this reflection of God, God's glory. That is why, that is what Paul is saying. He says, you know, God causes all things to work for your good in the sense that you are growing to be Christ-like. And the more we grow in Christ-likeness, the more we reflect the glory of God. But we go through difficult times, heartaches, tears, and we ask God, why? I have a friend who is a tribal missionary and she had a recurrence of cancer several times. It was the second time that she posted this on Facebook. She says a friend sent it to her from all the way from Germany, sent this article, which is 
really a writing of Elizabeth Elliot. And you know, right, I always quote from Elizabeth Elliot uh, because of her husband, Jim Elliot, who was martyred. And she chose to remain in the tribe with that one-year-old daughter with herself, a woman, to live in that place, to live among those tribal people who murdered her husbands, her husband and friends, not husbands, <laughs> all the husbands. Okay? Okay, anyway, in this book, uh, she wrote, right, to keep a quiet heart. Someone asked her to pray for a 30-year-old woman who has cancer. And this is what she says, Could I say to the young woman who has cancer, set your trou troubled hearts at rest. God is going to heal you. Now, certainly not. Jesus did not tell his disciples that he would not be killed. How do I know whether God would heal this young woman? I could, however, remind her that he would not for a moment let her go. That his love enfolded her and her precious children every minute of every day of every night. And that underneath are the everlasting arms. But is that enough? The terrible things of this world seem to make a mockery of the love of God. And the question always arises, why? And she gives an answer, the servant is not greater than his Lord. She's saying, when we go through difficult times, they seem to mock the goodness and love of God. You say God is good and God is love, why am I going through this? And then she gives an answer, which is what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, right? The servant is not greater than his Lord. When we cry, why, Lord? We should ask instead, why not, Lord? Shall I not follow my master in suffering as in everything else? Does our faith depend on having every prayer answered as we think it should be answered? Or does it rest rather on the character of a sovereign Lord? Does our faith depend on the answers being prayed? Our, our, our prayers being answered? Or does it rest in the character of who God is? We can't really tell, can we, until we are in real trouble. We only know when we face the, when the rubber meets the road. Since I pray for this young woman, asking God to enable her to show the world what genuine faith is, the kind of faith that overcomes the world because it trusts and obeys, no matter what the circumstances the world does not want to be told. The world must be shown. Isn't that part of the answer to the great question of why Christians suffer? So my friend's post, her title is this, The World Must Be Shown. Indeed, friends, we don't need to talk so much to other people about what I believe about God. The world must be shown in our lives. How we respond in tears and troubles. Do we truly believe that God will work all things for the good of those who love Him and those who are called according to His purpose. The world must be shown His glory reflected in us because we are growing in humility, because we learn to give thanks in our sorrows, because we learn to surrender and say, God, I'm not in control, because our appetites are different from that of the world. The world must be shown. The question is, do you show the world who God is through your lives? For the world must be shown. There are groans, but there is glory. That is what God is doing. And you say, but Lord, I cannot. And Paul knows. So he goes on to show us the grace. When we look at um, New City today, the question, every day, every week we cover one question. 
talks about the first three commandments. We see the commandments of God gives us freedom not to restrict us. The first three commandments is really about trusting the sovereignty of God, letting Him be the Lord of our lives and through our words and life, worship Him. This is exactly what Paul is saying. Believe all things, work for the good. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Surrender to His Lordship. And you say, I cannot. What if I fail? I don't have enough faith. And this is exactly what Paul, Paul re- re- replies. He says, yes, but there is grace. God will not fail. Secondly, God will not let you fail. Let's look at verse 31. He says, what is our assurance? What then shall we say to these things? All this suffering and pains and tears. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered himself over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now what is this context? Many people quote this verse and says, God is for us, who can be against us? I can have victory over this colleague, you know, who does bad things to me. I have victory over this particular challenge I have. The context of this is present suffering. We have victory in the sense that we grow in Christ's likeness and we reflect God's glory, not that you get the promotion or get to buy the big house or drive the nice car. Although, of course, God can bless us with that. But the context of Romans 8, you have to take into account from Romans 1 all the way to Romans 8. All the brokenness and sin that all have sinned and what it talks about Jesus, the salvation and the struggle with the flesh and overcoming the flesh. So whatever God gives us is to reflect His glory for us to overcome this flesh. He gives us freely all things, which means that we don't have will not reflect His glory. Verses 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Not only the Holy Spirit prays for us, Jesus is praying for us. So Paul says, you know, God will not fail. He has done all these good things for you. Who can take it away? Then he says, God will not let you fail. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it's written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. You experience what they were going through. What can separate us from God's love? Will loneliness, will sickness, will death? He says, no, in all things, we are overwhelmingly, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Because of Jesus, we are super conquerors. We are super conquerors. We overcome our circumstances because of the love of Christ, not because we love Him a lot, not because we have great faith. And so Kenneth Cole shared about his struggles. You know, in the depths of his struggles, he thought, you know, what hope do I have? You know, I've already passed that prime age. I have no jobs. You know, nobody loves me. I'm struggling. cannot step out of my home. And then he, he, he read about the story of Caleb. You remember Caleb? Joshua and Caleb went into the promised land. They came back and said, okay, let's go. God has prepared for us. The other ten spies said, no, the people in there are like giants and we are like little crickets. And so because of that, God said, you know, so you don't go in. You walk around the wilderness for another 40 years so that this generation dies out and only Joshua and Caleb will go in. 
fast forward 40 years. Now they're about to go into the promised land again. Now if you're Caleb, how would you feel? Now I should have gone in 40 years ago. Right? I walked these 40 years around this desert for nothing because of those people. I had faith. They had no faith. No, I go in, but no, I'm married 80 years old, you know, I cannot even enjoy all the, the things in the promised land. We can have many complaints. We can nag, we can feel bitter, we can go through the same set of circumstances, but different people come up with different responses. Some come up with hardened faith, some come up with doubts. But what did Caleb say? Give me that land. At 80 years old, he didn't regret. He didn't look back and say, oh, yeah, I missed the chance, I missed the boat, I was shortchanged. He says, give me that land. He still had that faith, that fervor in God. And so Kenneth Cole, he, he shared, he says, God exceeds human expectation by giving treasure where there isn't supposed to be any. He is making streams in the wilderness. Caleb's victory, victorious declaration, give me this mountain, make Caleb a conqueror. And that's who we are in Christ. We can follow Jesus for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And some of us are sitting there a little jaded. Maybe because we have been hurt, we have been disappointed in the past by people, by church, by our family, by God. We have lost that first love. But Paul reminds us, the love of God will never fail us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that's how he ends this passage. This is my favorite passage in Scripture. It says, For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not in us, but in Christ. It's what God has done for us. And this, he's comparing different extremes. He's saying that nothing can separate us, can take us out of God's love, including ourselves. We feel that we don't hear God. We turn away from God, but God has not turned away from us. But God has not stopped speaking to us. Elizabeth Elliot, how she end, uh, in this passage, and keep my heart uh, quiet, heart, she says, I'm not a theologian or a scholar, but I'm very aware of the fact that pain is necessary to all of us. In my own life, I think I can honestly say that out of the deepest pain has come the strongest conviction of the presence of God and the love of God. When our life is going well, we, we don't really need to trust Christ. When we find difficulty, just a little pain here, a little pain there, you know, we, we, we realize I'm not in control. You realize that I really need to rely on God. It humbles us. We draw close to God and He says what? I always regarded the death of my husband, Jim, as the worst possible thing that could happen. But you know what? When the worst thing you could ever imagine happens, there's something that was not there in your imaginings. That is the grace of God. And this is a wonderful passage, isn't it? We can imagine all the fears and uncertainties, what's going to happen in front, but when it really happens, there's something that you have never imagined. In your imaginings, that is the grace of God. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. What thing? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Through our groans, because of His grace, we can see the glory. 
You know, last week, I was attending a DG. One of the brothers shared with me, he was leading the Bible study of Romans 7, and he was so burdened, his heart was so heavy. So he went to the niche of that sister who passed away with a baby. Because they really grew up in the same DG over the years. He said he went there and he just talked to her what has happened in his life. He says, I don't know what I was doing there, I was just talking. And he even wrote a poem, you know. One day I asked him to share the poem with us. And then he says he started reading Romans, Romans 7, Romans 8. And when he reached this portion of Romans 8, he just broke down. But he told me it was good tears. Because he knows even in the depths of this hurt, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Even your deepest valleys, your deepest hurts, when you feel that God is not speaking, you know nothing can separate us from the love of God. Last week I shared with you all, right? I was at a Chinese congregation, welcoming people. And everyone that I saw became a burden. I saw their problem, 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 problem. And so I said, you know, I feel like I'm like a Teflon uh, pan. You know, you buy a new pan, you cook. Everything is non-stick, right? So good. And then after a while, like how I feel now, I feel like I'm an old broken pan. All the Teflon already scratched. What happens? You crack the egg and it sticks. So everything was sticking at me. I felt so burdened. I had a mild panic attack, you know. I went to the back of the place and started to breathe. And this has never happened to me before. You know, and I shared, right, um, I, was just, I wake up early to grab onto God. But I have to be honest, I don't feel God is speaking to me. And you know, it's been a long time since I wrote my last sermon. Thank God, Romans, I wrote last year. <laughs> so, second half of the year, a bit, a bit challenging. <laughs> I couldn't write because I just feel stuck. I mean, of course I can write. Lah. I want to write something, I just cut and paste and put one thing together if I wanted to. But I don't feel like God is speaking. I was desperate. So this week, I was also preparing, you know, and I was reflecting on what the brother shared. And you know, when I came to Romans 8, this section, I was sitting at my mother's void deck downstairs working. Don't know why I was in the void deck. And then I was writing and reading and I broke down in tears. But it's good tears. Because finally I felt it broke through. God is speaking. God has always been speaking, but it's just that I couldn't hear. It broke through because as I turned away, finally I, re- I realized that as I'm desperately grabbing onto God, God is holding on to me. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Through the groans, because of His grace, friends, we can see the glory. That is the promise that we have. Amen? Let us pray. What an encouragement in God's Word that we are overwhelmingly conquerors. We are super conquerors. Friends, I don't know what is on our hearts that we have the burdens that we can bring before God. And even if there's not, your life is going fine. Let's pray that God will use you to reflect His glory. Whatever you're going through, God is chiseling at you, shaping you so that the image of Christ in us can come out and reflect the glory of God. And we know this is possible not by our own strength, not by our own faith, not by our own discipline, but because of the grace of God that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Amen. Church, let's stand. Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39 together. Loudly 
in one convicted union, united voice. Ready? Go. Spend some time in silent meditation. Allow the Word of God to continue.